Welcome back to Oliver's Insights, part of the Simplifying Investing podcast series. It's great to have you here. A reminder that this podcast is general in nature and hasn't taken your circumstances into account. It's important you consider your personal circumstances and speak to a financial advisor before deciding what's right for you. Any general tax information provided is provided as a guide only. And with that out of the way, here's Shane. G'day there and welcome to the latest issue of the Oliver's Insights podcast. This week, we're going to have a look at the Chinese economy. For many years now, there's been scepticism about China's economic success. Lots of TV programs, lots of print has been devoted to analysing it, and many have been predicting its inevitable demise. But that scepticism has intensified lately, particularly on the back of slowing economic growth, problems in the Chinese property market, high debt levels, or at least a rapid rise in Chinese debt levels over many years, and falling long-term growth potential, with talk that China's economy is teetering on the brink, and even President Biden describing its economy as a ticking time bomb. After strong growth and a big run-up in debt over the last decade or so, there is a fear that it's going down the same path as Japan, which after a surge in asset prices and debt on the back of what was dubbed a miracle economy in the 1980s, it's amazing how many uh, economies are dubbed miracle economies at rest points in time. You probably don't want to really be called that because it often turns into a problem. But in any case, after what was dubbed a miracle economy in the 1980s, the Japanese economy slipped into a long period of poor growth and deflation as the 1990s went into the 2000s. As the world's second largest economy, what happens in China has significant ramifications globally and of course in Australia, given that China is our biggest single export market. This week, we look at the main issues around all of this and what it means for Australia. After China's COVID restrictions were finally eased late last year, there was hope its economy would rebound. In fact, it did in the March quarter, but since then it disappointed, with GDP growth in the June quarter slowing to just 0.8% quarter on quarter from 2.2% in the March quarter. And July economic activity data for China has shown a quite sharp further slowing in growth in things like industrial production, retail sales, which is now just running at 2.5% year on year. I think that's even weaker than Australia. And investment, exports and imports out of and into China are down 14.5% year on year and 12.4% year on year respectively. Bank lending and credit growth have slowed despite some monetary easing. And of course, reflecting weaker economic conditions, business conditions, PMIs or purchasing managers indicators, as we call them, have also fallen sharply. And youth unemployment has risen from around 12% to 21% over the last five years. Reflecting faltering economic growth, modest inflation in China has given way to deflation with the CPI and producer price inflation all negative. Although one should note that core inflation, which excludes energy prices and food prices, is just slightly positive. Very different situation to what you're seeing in the rest of the world though. The slowdown in China reflects a combination of factors, but high on the list are many households seeking to rebuild savings which were depleted through the lockdowns. As I'll explain in a moment, China has a very high savings rate, and it's largely precautionary on the part of households because they don't have the social welfare network that we in Australia and other Western countries have. But as we went through the pandemic and the lockdowns, Chinese households did not have their incomes protected to the same degree that they were in Australia with, say, JobKeeper, and in various Western countries with furlough schemes and so on. As a result, when they emerged from the lockdown, there wasn't the same degree of excess savings compared to pre-COVID levels, which have supported spending in many Western countries. In fact, it's been the opposite. Savings were depleted and Chinese households, or many of them at least, have been trying to rebuild their savings back to their 
prior levels, albeit they were very high even then. So that's the first problem. And of course, when households are feeling cautious, they don't spend, or not as much as you might hope. The second factor has been a property collapse. After reaching record highs in 2021, new home sales are down sharply, property transactions are running down 33% or so year on year, and home prices have fallen, reflecting tightening policies and oversupply. This has led to big problems. For example, at developers such as Evergrande and Country Garden, they relied very heavily on high debt levels and a steady flow of new buyers. And of course, that's all now a problem because they're no longer getting the steady flow of new buyers, which means they don't have the money coming in to keep their construction activities on track. And that in turn has led to major problems. Um, Some people are not getting their properties completed that they've already signed up for and paid a deposit. But of course, we've also seen those images of lots of apartment blocks being destroyed in China because the developers can't keep them. Companies have run into trouble, particularly companies or trust companies that issue investment products which help finance developers. Some of those investment products have not been making their payments because they haven't been getting the return on the property investments that they'd undertaken. Local governments in China have also been struggling to some degree because they rely on land sales for revenue. And finally, many Chinese households have seen property-related investments sour, and that, of course, impacts consumer spending. However, the slowdown in China is also being impacted by a range of structural problems. The first thing to note about China, and this makes it very different from many other countries that have high debt levels, is that it has a very high savings rate of around 45% of GDP. So I'm not just here talking about household savings, I'm talking about savings in the whole economy across the government sector, corporate sector and households. But of course, households make up the bulk of that saving. So that level of 45% is roughly double the national savings rate of countries like Australia. This makes comparing China's debt problems to other countries very difficult because you're not comparing apples with apples. In fact, China has firstly borrowed from itself, but because it also saves so much, it means those savings have to be recycled. It does not have a heavily or highly developed equity market, so all of that saving or the bulk of it gets recycled through the banking system, turned into debt when it's lent out to corporates and state-owned enterprises to invest, but also when it goes to property investors. So debt goes up because they've got a very high savings rate. Of course, they if they don't recycle, cycle those savings, then they end up with very weak demand, high unemployment and chronic deflation can all result from that. This problem, China for many, many years has been recycling that high level of saving through corporate debt into investment and then also via debt that's raised and put into the property market. And that of course has resulted in a rapid rise in China's debt levels since 2008, where we've seen the ratio of Chinese non-financial debt rise from around about 130% of Chinese GDP up to around nearly 300%. So almost more than a doubling in China's debt to GDP ratio internally since 2008. That's almost taken it up to levels seen in advanced countries. But of course, that is over many, many years of a more gradual rise. Secondly, and this is the second structural issue in China, the easy opportunities for capital investment have already been taken up. This can be seen in China's ratio of fresh capital or fresh investment to GDP and also fresh debt to GDP have increased substantially in recent times, indicating that if more investment and debt is necessary to achieve the same increase in GDP as in the past. In other words, if you pump an amount of investment into the economy or an amount of debt, you're not receiving the same level of 
GDP boost that you would have in the past. In other words, both of those things are becoming less effective. Thirdly, all of this hasn't been helped by geopolitical tensions, which have slowed export growth in China. So in other words, if China for many, many years relied on stronger levels of investment to boost their export sector, that is now running into trouble because of those geopolitical tensions, which are putting a break on China's export growth. It's also led all those geopolitical tensions have also led to a plunge in foreign direct investment in China, which is down 87% on a year ago, and it's restricted access to US technology long before China has become a fully developed economy. The fourth structural problem relates to property. While some cried wolf too early on China's property market, you may recall back in 2011, SBS in Australia ran a program called China's Ghost Cities. And of course, uh, they referred to one city in particular, which looked like a ghost city because there was no one in the apartments. That was many years ago. 12 years ago now, and of course, we haven't yet seen the implosion. But maybe we're starting to see the problems occur because using property to recycle high savings is now starting to sour. This was viable many years ago, in fact, a decade ago, when urbanisation or the rate of urbanisation was rapid. But analysis these days, based on utility usage or power usage and light emissions at night, suggests that some areas in China may have 25% of apartments vacant. So we're seeing a situation of very high levels of oversupply. Fifth, China's demographics are poor as its workforce is now shrinking and it has a rapidly aging population. This also weighs on property demand, but it also removes a key source of economic growth. And finally, despite a falling workforce, China could arguably still grow very quickly because its GDP per capita or output per worker are around 20% of US levels. So it still has a lot of catching up to do. However, the easy gains, this of course is very different to Japan 30 years ago when it started to run into trouble because by that stage, Japan had already largely caught up to the US. So it had done its catching up. China still has a lot of catching up to do. So this means it still has potential to grow rapidly. However, the easy gains of industrialization by putting people in front of machines have been had. And China runs the high risk of falling into the so-called middle income trap, where countries fail to transition to being high income countries as a result of increasing state intervention in the economy. With the resurgence of less efficient state-owned enterprises, they in fact now account for something like 60% of investment in China, and that's up from 30% 10 years ago. There's also been a regulatory crackdown on tech companies and other sectors, and that acts as a disincentive to future entrepreneurs. And finally, we're staying state intervention on national security grounds and tighter access to foreign technology. All of that more heavy-handed approach to managing the economy risks slowing productivity down. And historically, none of those things have been good for productivity. And so it took calls question marks as to whether China will continue to rapidly catch up to Western countries in terms of per capita GDP. As a result of China's falling workforce and slowing productivity growth, estimates of its potential real GDP growth have fallen from around 10% in 2006-2010 to now around 5%, and they're put at around 3% for the next decade. I guess the fear is that China continues to slow, causing a spiral of bigger property sector problems with sharp falls in asset prices, more developers failing, increased consumer caution, weaker growth, and further falls in asset prices. Or alternatively, that a major near-term crisis is averted, but it slides into a decades-long period of stagnation deflation like China did after its 1980s boom years. With opportunities to recycle China's high savings rate into investment and property starting to diminish, it should be saving less as an economy and spending more. To achieve this requires aggressive fiscal stimulus to rebalance the economy towards consumer spending, in particular 
This would involve improving social welfare in terms of the pension system, health and education in order to lower what we call precautionary household saving and support spending. Despite indications from the Politburo and other meetings that stimulus would be forthcoming, so far it's been very mild with only a few cuts to interest rates and measures to promote consumers to spend more and buy more homes without large-scale measures to actually help them do so. This has led to concern that the government is more focused on trying to avoid reflating the credit and housing bubble much as Japan was in the early 1990s and or that it is not aware of the severity of the problem. Our assessment though is that Chinese government is well aware of the need to support growth given the risk of social unrest and will ultimately do so probably after the summer travel boom comes to an end soon. Furthermore the Chinese government is most unlikely to allow a GFC style collapse in property developers and is likely to continue to manage the problem in a smooth fashion. So a collapse in the Chinese economy is unlikely but the risk that policy stimulus is too little or too late can't be ignored and nor can the broader comparison with Japan at the end of the 1980s. A key difference with Japan 30 years ago is that China's per capita GDP is still low, so it still has that catch-up potential. But its rapid private debt build-up is similar to Japan's in the 1980s. Its demographic outlook is a bit worse and the threats to productivity growth with state intervention and trade with geopolitical tensions are much greater than was the case in relation to Japan 30 years ago. Now, when we look at the Chinese share market, it's worth noting that Chinese shares are down 36% from their record 2021 high and in fact cheap when compared to earnings. And they in fact trade on a price to earnings multiple of just 7.7 times, whereas most Western countries are around 15 times or more and book value and sales. This suggests significant potential for a bounce in the Chinese share market if significant stimulus is announced. However, I should point out that the risks in relation to Chinese shares are quite high. So what does all this mean for Australia? Uncertainty around China's outlook is a key risk for global growth at present and could be a contributor to further correction in shares in the short term. But as I mentioned, the likelihood is that we'll get some sort of stimulus coming out of China eventually. The collapse in the share of Australian goods exports going to China in 2021 and 2022 from around 42% to less than 30% of our exports, partly due to trade restrictions at the time, without a major hit to our economy, highlights that maybe Australia is not as dependent on China as many may think. Nevertheless, a sharp downturn in China would be a double whammy for the Australian economy, coming at a time when the lagged impact of big interest rate hikes on household spending comes through. But while it's a risk, it's not our base case, as I mentioned, because we ultimately expect there will be a ramp up a ramp up in Chinese stimulus measures, enabling Chinese growth ultimately to settle at around 5% this year and 4.5% next year. Now, of course, that's not great compared to the past experience for China, but it is not a disaster either. However, the risks around the Chinese outlook and its longer term growth potential mean Australia cannot rely on the China commodity boom indefinitely driving national income and hence masking our poor productivity performance. This is another reason why Australia needs structural reforms to boost our longer term growth potential. I hope that's been of value. Until we meet again, adios. To keep up to date with Dr. Oliver and the Simplifying Investing podcast series, be sure to subscribe to your favourite streaming platform.